Well, good morning to you all. With the born-again experience comes discernment, and that discernment is how to live the new life in Christ. John calls it an anointing and says the following in 1 John 2.27. He says, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, this is not to say that others do not teach us, but the message of another needs to be confirmed by the scriptures and the spirit that dwells within us. Therefore, the teacher, the spirit, and the word need to be in unity. The Spirit will not teach something contrary to the Word, and thus we can check or clarify that what a man, for example, is teaching us is from the Lord or it is not. And we take the Breen's example in Acts 17.11 to examine the Scriptures to confirm what any man says is the truth. In my sermon today, I want to speak of this discernment that is given by the Spirit's anointing and is given to each one of us. I will be using the last six chapters of Romans somewhat like a survey to speak of the marks of a Christian that set the Christian apart from those in the world. In chapter 11 at verse 25 of Romans, Paul begins by speaking of the disparity that we see between two groups. The first group are God's children, of whom he has mercy on. And the second group are the reprobates, or those of whom God, in his perfect free will, does not choose to have mercy on. Please turn with me to Romans 11.25. At verse 25, Paul says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Remember that one statement. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now this Romans 11 text is absolutely crucial to our understanding of the mercies of God and to whom those mercies are given. Jew and Gentile alike are on a level ground before the bar of God. 
He plays no favorites with anyone. Here we see that social status, family status, financial status, or any other status that we would consider simply means nothing and is not a factor in God's election of his people. In fact, we have no idea why the Lord would have mercy on some and not on others. He has chosen to make a choice that is not dependent on anything that man has done, nor is it reliant on man in any way. The information that he has supplied us with this statement, he has uh, found in Romans 9.15. He says this, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Or in the Greek, he would say, it would say, I will, I will mercy who I choose to mercy, and I will compassion those I choose to compassion. So then it depends, <coughs> excuse me, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So that, so then, I'm sorry, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, why does he do this? Well, he does this to bring glory to himself. We are simply instruments within the hands of God. We are simply clay within the hand of the potter. He chooses to mold us in such a way that brings glory to himself. But in our pride, we can think that God has chosen us simply because there is something special or unique in us that others do not possess. But this is simply untrue. Paul even goes so far to make the following statement so as to crush the pride of any man who says otherwise. He makes a statement earlier in Romans chapter 11, starting with verse 17. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. It is not the Christian that supports Christ, but it is Christ that supports the Christian. In other words, he goes on in 19, then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. (coughs) Excuse me. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Notice the contrast here. Whether we are Jew or Gentile, each one of us must abide by the qualifier in this last sentence. The qualifier being provided that you continue in his kindness. Those who by faith belong to the Lord will 
continue in his kindness. Why? Well, we go back to Romans eleven twenty nine, because the gifts and the callings of God are simply irrevocable. They do not change. The work that God has done is set in stone and nothing can change the results. So if God calls a man to be the elect, to be a child of God, there is nothing that can take away that calling. So the very essence of the gospel is that God has done a work that man had no capability of doing himself. And Paul's message to those in Rome is simply to walk in this amazing work that the Lord has done on behalf of his people. On the cross, for on the cross, Christ said what? He said, it is finished. The atoning work of man, the redemption of man, the penalty that must be paid to allay the wrath of God on man has been finished. And Paul's message to those in Rome is to walk in this work. Why has he done this? The last verse in Romans 11 gives us the answer. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So we see from this one verse that God does everything to bring glory to himself. He calls a man. He calls one man uh, to do something, and he calls one man to do another. But all things that God has called men to are to bring glory to himself. And God's mercy brings results. No one can ever say that God, God's work ever fails. But what he is doing within each of those that he calls as his own is what he has decreed from before time began. Paul continues his thoughts in chapter 12 by conveying to those in Rome what it means to be a Christian. A Christian will have certain peculiar characteristics that will not be common. He will walk in such a way that is patterned after his model, which is Christ. No longer will the Christian, who now has the life of Christ abiding in him, be driven by his selfish desires. Not to say he won't struggle with selfish desires, but he knows better because now he has the life of Christ dwelling in him. And he will seek to think as Christ thinks, talk as Christ talked, walk as Christ walked, and bring glory to the Father as Christ brought glory to the Father. This Christian individual has a new purpose in life. He no longer desires that the world notice him and all his intrinsic value, but that the world would now see Christ working in him and through him, and that the Father may be glorified by what he says and does. The passions that are springing up inside him because of his newfound faith, are saying, Oh, Father, teach me. Father, show me. Bring others into my life, men and women alike, that I may see and follow this new standard, this new model for life that is patterned after the life of my Savior. 
Please follow along with me as we read Paul's passionate exhortation to the church in Rome. In Romans 12, starting in verse 1, Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Do we understand this, my brothers and sisters, today that we are no longer isolated beings outside the body of Christ, but we are attached to one another by Christ. He is the foundation by which everything else within the body is attached to. He goes on to say in verse 6, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we see here, brethren, a new standard by which we knew nothing about before Christ. Now he has brought this standard before us, and he is teaching us by his spirit to walk in this perfect standard that Christ displayed when he walked the earth. Of course, there have been many formal statements or creeds 
that people of religious faith have written for themselves and for others to follow. Wrapped up in this chapter is the creed, not of a denomination, not of a movement, not of a special religious club, but this is the creed of the Christian. Just dwell for a moment on the different marks of a Christian that is spoken of in this chapter. Number one, he says, give up your formal life. You are now a Christian. There is no longer any room to engage in your selfish lifestyle or to preserve your life at any cost. God has changed you. Your life no longer belongs to you. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, the command is given you to glorify God in your body and your spirit, which belong to God. You no longer belong to anyone but to Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. Number two, no longer listen to the wisdom of the world. For what does worldly wisdom have to do with the wisdom that comes from above? For the two are simply incompatible. Your wisdom now comes from the pages of scripture as you were taught and led to do by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Paul's admonition for the people in Rome is to transform themselves by the daily renewal of their minds as they read and study God's word. The word of God now has become the Christian's standard of life. And if what we learn from others about morals, ethics, and dogma does not line up with, thus says the Lord, we simply do not embrace it. Number three, God has placed you in a position of service. Life is no longer all about you. With this in mind, be humble and sober, as was patterned by our Lord, as well as those who made it their life's purpose, their life's purpose to study the life of Christ and walk as he walked. Number five, I'm sorry, number four, seek out others who have been saved by God's amazing grace. Recognize your gifts, take notice of the gifts of others, and seek to complement one another by practicing these wonderful gifts that God has given each one to bring glory to himself, to encourage one another, and to see many come to Christ as we walk in the life that he has ordained for us to walk. We belong to one another. We are a family. We must stick together for the furtherance of the gospel. Remember, without even one member, the body of Christ is incomplete. And number five, let your love for one another be genuine. Let it be authentic. No longer do anything out of pretense. We have been called to be real. If temptation arises to walk in a way other than Christ walked, we must refuse to do so. If we fall, we quickly repent and apologize for our sin. Number six, do not be high-minded, but recognize that except for God's grace to stem the tide of your sin, of my sin, we would be a mess. 
We all have been tempted to look at those who have fallen and stand on a pedestal above them as if for some ability of our own. We have mustered up strength to reject the sin that is for us, knowing that all sin is common to man. And and therefore, we are called to look at the life of Christ, walk as he walked in a, a humble, a sober fashion, recognizing that we can fall just like our brother or sister has fallen. It is our responsibility to come beside them and help them up so that they may continue their walk in Christ. Number seven, without God's grace, we could do none of this, but would be as hopeless as the individual that God has not chosen to bring to himself or the individual that is outside of God's mercy. <clears throat> and no, and number eight, no longer think in ways that are vengeful, but give way to God in the matter. Treat those who are your enemies with the utmost respect. If the evil has been done to you, return the evil with good. Refuse to walk in evil. Determine to walk in what is good. This is the creed of the Christian. <clears throat> Moving on in Romans 13, Paul explains to the church as to how they are to interact with the civil magistrate. We read this in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good, and you will receive his approval. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all... What is owed them? Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now many would see this passage as a wholesale commandment to do whatever the civil magistrate asks of you. (laughs) But this is simply not true. The civil magistrate as the passage says, is the servant of God and must bow to God's authority. For example, the civil magistrate tells me that I can, my wife and I can only have one child. Or if my wife is pregnant, she must get an abortion or make a child sacrifice. No, these are things we push back on. And, and we call 
the civil magistrate to bow to the very dictates for him found in the word of God. The passage says that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad conduct. So if a ruler is a terror to good conduct, well, he's not placed himself in subjection to God. The point is, we do not surrender what we know is right to appease the governing authority. We must also always, I'm sorry, obey God and not man. Rather, but we do respect the office and the person in the office by calling him to submit to the word of God that God has given him to follow. He is the minister of God to bring punishment on the evildoer, not the individual who does good according to the conscience, as the scripture says. This is the doctrine of interposition. As with the Constitution is the law of the land, in the U.S., the Scripture is the law for all, with the Constitution being subservient to the law of Scripture. Interposition looks past the immediate authority to the authority over the immediate authority and calls the immediate authority to obey the authority that is over him. Or her. As example, the three Hebrew young men in the book of Daniel refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. As a result, they were blessed. Why? Because they obeyed God rather than man. But they weren't antagonistic towards towards Nebuchadnezzar. Just oh, 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 king, you, you understand we can not bow to anyone but God. They rather appeal to him. Paul continues in chapter 13 with this in verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Catch that? Love is the fulfilling of the law. The law has simply not been eradicated. But as we love our neighbor, we show perfect love of Christ toward him, what are we doing? We're fulfilling the very love of God. We won't steal from our neighbor. We won't murder our neighbor. We won't covet his goods. But we will do that which is right because God has called us to love our neighbor. He goes on in verse 11, besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, 
not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We put on Christ much like we would when we'd see a storm outside. We put a coat on. Well, it's stormy outside in the world. And therefore, before we go out in the world, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see the perfect unity between God's perfect law and his perfect administration of grace. If you truly love your neighbor, you will not commit adultery with his wife. You will not steal from him and you will not covet his belongings. Simply put, you will love your neighbor as you love yourself. However, since we still battle with this monkey on our backs called the flesh, we will suffer through temptation to commit these atrocious acts of sin. But again, we are Christian, and Christians do not walk in this grossly destructive behavior. A Christian may fall into sin, but he will be convicted and disciplined by his faithful father, The reprobate will be allowed to wallow in his sin with no correction. This is simply because a Christian's father in heaven is not the father of the reprobate. And thus, there will be no abiding relationship. The reprobate is not a branch fed by the root, which is Christ. And thus, the disparity between the Christian and the reprobate will be clearly seen by all. As we move into chapter 14, Paul makes the strongest case for the liberty of the Christian. Let's read through this chapter for Paul's greater context into this matter. In verse 1 he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and we, if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
Therefore, let us not, not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Or if your brother is, say for example, grieved by what you wear, or grieved by what you drink, or grieved by what you say, the principle it's here. You are not, no longer walking in love towards your brother. <clears throat> by what you eat, he goes on to say, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, Paul here in chapter 14 gives his argument for liberty of conscience. Not liberty of truth, as though we are the only arbiters uh, or the final arbiters of truth, but liberty of conscience. There is going to be different opinions, as Paul says, in regard to certain things. Now, when I say liberty of conscience, what is implied by the statement is that there are liberties that have been given to us by God that in no way break faith with him. Certainly one would not have the freedom to murder while another is restricted from murdering another. <clears throat> Some things that would be considered primary issues or non-negotiable commands, such as the commandment not to murder, has been given to all by God, and any who trespasses commandment would be guilty of sin. However, eating meat or vegetables or abstaining from one or the other is a liberty that God gives for each one to decide. Therefore, we should in no way judge another for what he eats. Paul is clear here that one who eats gives honor to the Lord for eating, and the one who does, who does eat gives honor to the Lord for not eating. Both are accepted before God. And Paul takes us a step further when he says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. At this point, the Christian finds himself in a position where he must use much caution and discernment. If my brother is stumbled by my eating, then I am no longer walking in love. For my brother, no longer, if he has stumbled in my eating, if he has stumbled in my dress, if 
he has stumbled in my drinking, if he has stumbled in my language. As mentioned, the principle is here. It is always good to know the basics about who you are serving or performing hospitality with. The individual may not be concerned about what you eat, but it is always a kind and loving gesture to ask. Paul adds to the discussion by bringing up the eating of food that has been sacrificed to idols. Some will be offended by this, whereas others will not. It is simply a matter of conscience. Liberty of conscience is a very crucial part of our daily lives as we communicate with others. And it really shows us that we are thinking of others, not just ourselves. We've all been there when someone has said, well, if if they're offended by what I say or do, that's their problem, it's not mine. Well, if you're a Christian, you need to examine the scriptures a little bit closer than that. Paul makes this statement in his first letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 8, starting with uh, verse 7b, he says, But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. The greater sin toward our brother is always our sin toward Christ. Verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. It's an amazing statement by Paul saying that how my brother sees or feels about what I do is really important to me. And if something that I am doing causes my brother to stumble, I will no longer do it. In chapter 15, Paul continues his exhortation to the saints in Rome to abide by and do not break company with those who are weaker. Matthew Henry says this about those who are of a stronger frame and their responsibility toward those who are of a weaker frame. He says, we must bear the infirmities of the weak. We all have our infirmities, but the weak are more subject to them than others. The weak in knowledge or grace, the bruised reed and the smoking flax. We must consider these, not trample upon them, but encourage them and bear with their infirmities. If through weakness they judge and censure us, and speak evil of us, we must bear with them, pity them, and not have our affections alienated from them. Alas, it is their weakness, they cannot help it. Thus Christ bore with his weak disciples and apologized for them. 
but there is more in it. We must also bear their infirmities by sympathizing with them, concerning ourselves for them, ministering strength to them as there is occasion. This is bearing one another's burdens. Close quote. Well, I believe Paul's emphasis here, as in his other pastoral letters, is that collectively we are the body of Christ. The strongers need the weakers, and the weakers need the strongers. Without one weaker individual or one stronger individual, the body of Christ is incomplete. We are all intimately connected together by Christ, and there is never a good reason to separate from one another because of matters of conscience, or because one may be weak or strong in his or her disposition as a Christian. We should all strive to be sensitive to one another, that no one would be offended by another's words or behaviors, unless, of course, the behavior spoken against is sinful. Again, this takes much patience and discernment on behalf of the Christian. Just because someone may be a bit quirky or peculiar is no reason to divide the brethren, but I've seen this. You know, it's like, well, you know, you don't really belong to the cool group, and therefore we're not going to spend time with you or that person. This is simply wrong. We do everything we can with the Christ that is in us, the life of Christ that is in us, to pour that life into those around us, our brethren, those of the body of Christ. We come together to encourage and build each other up, not break each other down. Paul goes on to say this in verse 8 of chapter 15. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus in his life fulfilled what had been written of him by the prophets. He came not only as the suffering one, but he came as the serving one as well. His life was not wrapped up in himself, but was devoted to another, namely to carry out the perfect will of his father, which he did. This is our charge as well. Jesus no longer walks the earth. Paul no longer is here. The great fathers of the faith have passed, but we are still here. And thus, it is our responsibility to show others Christ, to display Christ by laying down our lives on behalf of them who need to see his life exercised through us. This is the life of the Christian. Don't be fooled. The life of the Christian will include suffering, It will include difficulty and persecution. These things are all promised to us by God. And these things are used by God to perfect us in our faith and to bring us into conformity to his son. Starting in verse 13, Paul blesses and commends the church in Rome when he says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. 
I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. You know, Paul was very confident in this. He had taught them. They embraced it. And then they were exercising their faith and their gifts toward one another. He goes on in verse 15, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Although Paul had not been to Rome up until this time, the reports that were given to him in regard to the church in Rome satisfied him greatly. Beginning in verse 17, we see the heart of Paul not wanting to infringe on another man's area of ministry when he says this in Christ Jesus then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Paul ends the chapter by expressing his desire to come to Rome, Attention is given to the fact that before he comes to Rome, he has some unfinished business helping the church in Jerusalem. And finally, he asks for prayer that he be not hindered by the non-believers in Judea, that he may fulfill his desire to help those in the church in Jerusalem. In chapter 16, Paul sends his many greetings to the brethren, those that he has labored with in the faith, And to close, I want to read the last part of Romans 16, starting with verse 17. He gives an appeal to the brothers in Rome, where he says, when he says this at verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greet you. So do Lucius and Jason, Sassipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Cortus, greet you. 
Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And therefore, he concludes that there will be those who will cause division in the church. But you pastors, you shepherds of our people, be watchful towards them. We see in Romans 11 through 16, somewhat of a statement of faith that Paul is giving Rome to follow, the, the church in Rome to follow. He wants them to have discernment as those who would come in and not abide by the teaching of Paul. But in but contrary to that, they would cause division. He wanted these shepherds to be watchful for this very thing. And so Paul gives somewhat, as I have said, a... Um, a statement of faith or a creed for the Christian to follow. And thus we, as the body of Christ, likewise should embrace what Paul has to say. Please pray with me. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that points us to Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us strength to follow the life of Christ and to walk as he walked, as the Apostle Paul has instructed us in these six chapters. We thank you for this time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.